Hi, I'm Heather Knight, and this is the Surviving to Thriving podcast. One in four women will experience severe physical violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime. We're going to discuss the taboo topic of domestic violence and the tools our thrivers have used to succeed in life. We want you to know that you are not alone in this fight. Please keep listening if you or anyone you know has been impacted by domestic violence. Before we get into today's episode, I would like to thank our sponsor, Night Protection Services, for making this podcast possible and all the support they provide our cause. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Surviving to Thriving. Today I have with us Jessie Junta Rafe. She is a licensed psychotherapist and certified success coach who's helped hundreds of young adults who feel lost find clarity and direction in their lives. As a teenager, she struggled with anxiety, depression, and chronic self-doubt. Through her own emotional journey, she developed the tools and methodology that have helped her empower her clients. She started her own business when she was 26 years old and has over 15,000 face-to-face hours with her clients. Jessie's primary motivation and deepest satisfaction lies in the transformation she sees her clients achieve through their own dedication, self-discovery, and strength. She's also launching a book in June called Life Launch, a roadmap to an extraordinary adulthood. Jessie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Heather. Definitely. So I just, you know, jump right into it. What was it like growing up for you? What was your childhood like in those years? So I grew up with two, I'm an only child and I had two Stanford graduate good because I became a high achiever. I was in good schools. I knew how to study. I had resources at my fingertips, but on another level, it was a lot of pressure. It was only it was only me and their philosophy was to make me the best version of me as possible, but, but it was hard because I felt a lot of pressure to be great, basically. Through high school, what was that? I know that like, I don't have, you know, the, that Ivy League school parents, but I do, I did have parents that expected a lot of me and, you know, they knew my potential and what I could do. And that was a lot of stress. So how did that stress affect you in high school? And how did that, that overarching kind of needing to be perfect affect you in high school? So at first that worked well. I had a large group of friends. I played three sports. I was on honor roll. I was on student council. And then one of my cousins who I was really, really close to, he was like a brother to me. He committed suicide when I was in the grade. And when he did that, not only did I feel immense pain from his loss and not having this person who was like a brother to me. But on top of that, it felt like every emotion that I had stuffed aside and every idea I had came to the surface at once. And it was so intense that I went from being this shining star to being the representation of darkness and depression at my pool. I, we didn't have goth then, but it might've been that I dressed in black. I had dark eyeliner. I wrote dark poetry and I talked about the meaninglessness of life and it was, it was rough. It was rough. Definitely. So did you lose a lot of friends when you went through that? Were people still accepting of kind of this transformation you had or? I, I didn't let people be close to me after that. I, I isolated myself from all my friends. I started cutting. It was a way to feel when I didn't know how to, when I couldn't really, when, when 
feelings got so intense, it's almost like my body shut off from them. So it was a way to allow me to feel. It was like a version of crying for me because I couldn't actually cry. And then on top of that, people in my family kept dying. He was the first one to commit suicide. But then two years later, his father committed suicide. Then my grandfather, who I was really close to, passed away. And so it was a downward spiral. And my parents, obviously, they I went in there to find relief, but I could feel their fear of not knowing what to do. And I could I just felt like I was drowning and I was completely alone. And it downward spiraled until I got put in a psych hospital, actually. And then I got over medicated. Because my cousins had bipolar disorder. They, they just assumed that I did, which I didn't. And if you give someone who doesn't have bipolar disorder a bunch of medications that go with that disorder, it can make them pretty crazy. So it took me from this dark place to actually being kind of manic and manic enough that they let me out of the hospital because they saw I had more energy and I was talking in a more positive way. But I knew and my parents knew that I was completely disconnected from my self and completely lost and and feeling more alone and kind of convinced that I was just going to go on the path that my cousin and my uncle had gone down that like why not everyone else was dying and everything was dark and no one seemed to understand me or know how to help me and so that was until someone recommended this therapist that was a pretty far drive from me and they said just try her and I was I was I don't want to I, I don't know no one seems to know what they're doing but my parents were like we're going and they went and the first thing that she did that was different than what anybody had done before is she had my parents in the room in the first session she had me sitting right next to her and she turned to me and she said jesse if you could make anything different about your family what would you want that to be two things different about your mom two things different about your dad and this really put me on the spot because on one level I had been a person that was just trying to be the perfect child. I, I didn't really critique them. So I was scared to give them any input. I was, you know, scared they would be hurt or upset or mad. But what she was saying to me in that moment, which felt really empowering to me, is that this isn't all on you. This is a problem that's in your family that we're all going to fix together. And, and she believed that as time went on, like, she believed that there was no way that I was going to actually feel better emotionally if, unless I could communicate with my parents, get closer to them, feel like they accepted and loved me for who I was, despite what I achieved or didn't achieve. And so I told them some pretty rough input in that session. I won't get into that. But when we left, like I thought they were going to, after I spoke honestly, I thought they were going to say, that's it, we're never going back. And quite the opposite. They were so relieved that someone finally had a handle on, on the problem and what to do that they were like, that's it, we're firing your other therapist. This is the therapist. This is the person that knows how to help you, which again felt really empowering to me that they, they wanted to hear me. They, they didn't believe that I was just this crazy person who no one knew how to help. They believed that they could be empowered to help me too. And that begun our journey of going to family therapy together, getting closer, and me realizing that 
they loved me for me the whole time. I just didn't realize it. I put their pushing and their drive on me being perfect as I wasn't good enough, but really it was just them trying. Ultimately, I realized it was them trying to get the best out of me. And as we came to get together, I got better and better. And through the process of being in therapy with that, with Tony, that was with Tony, I realized not only am I feeling better, I'm connecting to myself. Somebody finally sees me. She also helped me get off all the medication. I was on zero medication by the end but this is what I wanna do with my life. I wanna help other people who don't have the voice, the tools, the skills necessary to be able to help them go from, we'll use your podcast name, from surviving to thriving. That's amazing. I, I think that is so incredible that, and you are able to take a traumatic experience that you had and shape it into something that is good for the world because a lot of people aren't able to do that which is where you come in to give them the tools to be able to do that, but that you were not necessarily able to do it on your own, but that you still wanted to all, you know, you, you could have gotten better and, you know, been okay in life and just moved on and, and done something, you know, mundane and, and, you know, had a nine to five and all of that and been, you know, content and happy in life, but not really giving back to the people that gave to you. So I think that's really incredible. So you, you got into therapy, you did that. And then what were your, you decided that this was something that you want to do with your life. What were the next steps for you? So I was just coming into myself and figuring that so that my cousin committed suicide in ninth grade and I was coming into that place in my senior year. So I wasn't completely rid of depression and anxiety, but I was coming out of it and I could see the light and I could see that I, I mean, I loved reading everything psychology. So not, like I said, I wasn't just going to therapy now as a client, but I was going, what book should I read next? Like, what class should I take? And so I went to college and became a psych major. I ate everything up. Like, it just more solidified that that was my passion. That's what I love to do. And, oh, and I also, that therapist ran a group and that was really really a game changer for me because it put me in a room with other people that were also struggling not all a lot of groups are based on everyone has the same issue her group wasn't like that her group was we're going to have some people struggling with drugs some people struggling with cutting some people struggling with eating some people with anxiety and we're all going to come together because we're all going to have something different to offer somebody else and i really I really liked that and appreciated it. And I developed a support system there. So that's how I started to build after I'd isolated myself from all my friends. Now I had this new group of friends that also had an emotional language and support. And, and that's important because later on after call, so I went straight through college as a psych major. And then I went straight through grad school to become a psychotherapist. It's an, MFT, my degree is MFT, marriage and family therapy. And when I entered grad school towards the end of it, I went back and I now co-led that group with the therapist that helped me, which was really, really awesome to be able to, you know, go, that group saved my life in a lot of ways, like she did, but also the support did. And now I got to go back and help other people who were 
starting their journey to recovery, which was really, really inspiring to me. Yeah, that's incredible that you were able to bring that full circle and, and that she was able to, you know, trust you to be able to be a leader in that group. So that's really amazing. I kind of want to not go back, but what would be some pieces of advice that you would give to young adults or teenagers that were in that area and may think that their parents are never going to want to go to therapy or, you know, do these different things. What are some things that you would give to them to be able to push through that barrier? So I think when myself, and I'm going to get to your question, but it's going to be like a roundabout. So, okay. So I think the, the big key is that when you're really depressed or anxious or struggling emotional, emotionally, you feel like you're alone. And what I realized later on is that the mind isn't actually designed to make us happy. So what I mean by that is the voice in our heads is we, it's actually there to help us survive. So it's, because it's from a time when we lived in the jungle and we were facing life and death on a daily basis. And so the best way to keep us alive, to keep us not getting eaten by a tiger, not getting kicked out of our tribe, to have enough food, the best way to do that is to put us in a hyper vigilant, anxious state assessing danger. And the words that it's gonna use is not look out for that tiger because that wouldn't put us in a hyper vigilant state in today's modern times. It's going to be like, my parents are never going to understand me. I'm never going to have friends. There's no way I'm going to be able to make enough money to survive. It's going to look for what our buttons are, and then it's going to push, push them in order to kind of help us be looking around and hypervigilant and anxious. But that's not the state that we actually want to live in. We want to live in a state that's peaceful and happy and we have the ability to do so because most of us at least listening to this podcast are not facing life and death on a daily basis so and i think what's important about that is that i'm saying it's natural to feel alone and it's natural to feel negative about your life that's not unique to you and the way to get out of that is to first realize your mind's designed to do that and to, to second go what are the baby steps that I can take in order to create the life that I want to live? If my parents won't go to therapy yet, can I find a therapist that there are lots of affordable ones that are starting their careers who are still in grad school, but therapists in grad school have to get 500 face-to-face hours. And people sometimes poo-poo going to therapist interns or therapists in grad school But I go, these are the people that are the most passionate. They're not burned out. They're super excited. They're going to class every day learning different theories. And they have someone experienced also coaching them along the way. So that's just an example of going to, you don't need your parents to get on board. Mine, I was lucky that mine did, but I wouldn't have needed them to because I just needed someone to show me that I wasn't alone, that I wasn't crazy, and that that I had the ability to create the life I wanted. And that's what Tony did. She was the first therapist that wasn't afraid of me. So 
That's amazing. And then to the, my, my second point is, or what advice would you give to parents that are thinking that they need to bring their child into therapy, but maybe the child's not ready to go into therapy? Yeah. Okay, good. So I always tell parents, I don't take hostages because therapy doesn't work unless the person wants to be there. Now, a lot of times, and a lot of times I can do a ton of work with parents. I can make kids' lives substantially different only by working with the parents. So that, that's a process that happens all the time. But a lot of times I say, look, have your kid come in to meet me for one session and tell them, you're just going to go in once and you're going to meet her. And if you don't want to work with her, if you don't want to continue, there's going to be no pressure to do that. But she wants to understand, like, what, get the information from you of what you could do better as parents. And often, so I, I have some kids, but a lot of them are teens and young adults, and they'll come, and then they meet me, and they're so glad that someone's listening to them that they want to come back. And plus, I really, truly do want their input to help make their parents better parents, because I think that's having your family work feeling like you guys understand each other, like it's close. If that's possible, that's the easiest way to, to get better to start with, I think. So. Definitely. Okay, so going, going back to your journey and where you're at right now and in our storyline is you've just graduated grad school. So what were, or were you able to just jump right in and start your own practice? I know that you mentioned that a lot of people in grad school are working as an intern. So did you continue doing that? Um, or did you go and work for Tony? Okay. So, so I'm graduated grad school. I'm super excited. Now I'm going to get out and actually get to do the job that I've been dying to do for the last five years. You, you do do some, ex I worked as a school counselor while in grad school. So there was some of that, but now is now it's like the real i didn't get paid for that now it's the real deal i'm gonna get paid i'm gonna start my own business but guess what like i'm an awkward introvert so even though i had overcome this stuff and found my fulfillment i was kind of freaking out because i was thinking why didn't i just become an accountant like i'm really good at math i could have been alone in my office just talking numbers now i realize like a huge part of starting your own business, people don't just sign up to come see you. You have to go promote yourself. You have to network. You have to, you have to be able to sell yourself. And I don't feel, I feel confident that I have the beginning skills now to how to help people, but I do not feel confident in how to sell myself. So, and okay. And so I couldn't work with Tony because Tony was my, I could work with her as unofficially leading her group but to start my private practice i needed a different therapist to supervise me because you have to get after you finish grad school you have to get 3000 hours supervised then you take licensing exams and then you technically have your own business even though what i was doing was exactly what i did after i passed the exams i needed someone to uh, make sure that basically i was I, I needed to talk to someone every work every week to make sure I was handling my clients correctly for about three years before I'm completely on. Cause that's allowed about how long it takes to get 3000 hours, two to three years. Her name was Melissa and I was doing that. And I did things like practice 
going out into the waiting room and greeting my clients. Hi, my name is Jesse. Nice to meet you. I did that over and over and over and over again because I was trying to grow the confidence and that skill in my body. I knew once we got in the room and we were talking about their problem, I was going to be good at that. But the intro part and the selling myself part, that was going to be hard. So it took it took a lot of work. It took a lot of me creating. I love to create little step-by-step plans for myself to follow. So I feel like I'm getting somewhere because you don't just grow confidence overnight. That takes years. So you have to look at something you could measure. So I'd go, okay, this week I have to go to one networking event. Then I'd go to the event and I'd be like, now I have to introduce myself to three people. And then I'd be like, great job. You did that. Even if you sounded weird or awkward or you're stumbling over your words, at least, at least you're growing the skill. And so baby step after baby step time over time, like I got better and better. And and now my clients don't believe that I was an awkward introvert. Although if you interviewed any of my friends who knew me, they would go, yes, she was. It was hard for me to even look people in the eye at that time. So yeah, definitely. So as an adult, how are you dealing with anxiety and, um, and depression? Cause I know from my own experience, from people that are close with me, it doesn't just go away. It's a constant thing that you're working on and, and working through and, and making sure that you're always, you know, positively encouraging yourself. So what are you doing as an adult to be able to do that? Okay, good question. Because our mind's designed to be negative, we're always swimming upstream to be a positive person. So be, I believe. So because of that, I believe, again, you need a system in place. So my system for myself is, I know if I don't exercise five days a week, I'm not the same person. And that doesn't mean I have to go hardcore hitting the gym with really heavy weights all the time. It means that I have to just do a little bit of yoga. I have to make sure I go for a walk because I believe that emotions and energy gets trapped in our body. And so one thing we need to do is make sure we move it. That that really, and now I have a job where I'm holding everyone's emotion. So that's really empowering and fulfilling. But that also means I have to be even more diligent about making sure I'm doing the things that allow that to release. So moving my body is one. Another thing is in that line is that I eat really healthy. I used to be a horrible eater. I loved Diet Coke, cigarettes, and fast food. But now, like, I got older, my digestive system stopped working, my immune system didn't work so well. And so I readjusted my diet in an extreme way, eating basically whole foods. I don't eat processed foods and I don't eat processed sugar. And at first it was for my health, but what ended up happening is I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't even know that I could feel calmer, so much calmer. I thought I was already calm, but there's a whole new level of calm by only feeding my body what it actually wants. So that's another thing. Third thing is I meditate because meditating is the practice of separating from that survival mind. It's being able to listen to the negative thoughts in your head, feel the feelings that go along with it, and then not attach to them as part of your identity, which we're used to doing. We're used to going, my depression, my anxiety, where instead of going, No, this is the natural human condition. It varies in degree. It varies in what it's going to say to you individually, but we all have to struggle with it. And the more that we can not personalize it, 
and practice separating from it, then the easier it is to get back to a state of peace, calm, joy. And then the other part is I always, like, I'm a psychologist at heart. So I have friends that I talk to when, when I'm feeling upset or anxious. And I have different friends that I go to for different, different things. And I make sure that I'm not just ignoring what I'm feeling and not expressing it as it comes. Because I think it's the, uh, a great teacher said, what we resist will persist. What we accept will transform. So the more that we're resisting what we're feeling or denying what we're feeling, the more it has a chance to build up. And the more that we have the ability to let it flow. All emotions are temporary. We just have to let them flow through us. We can do that by talking them out and journaling them out and being aware of them. Definitely. I want to touch on a point of what is the difference between a psychotherapist and a psychologist? Okay, thank you for calling me out because technically I'm not a psychologist, but I use that word because sometimes people know it better than psychotherapists. So a psychotherapist has a master's degree. That's what I have. I have a master's degree with a, I'm a licensed psychotherapist. A psychologist has a, has a doctorate degree, but they don't prescribe meds because there's also a psychiatrist. A psychiatrist went to med school and he prescribed psychotropic medication. A psychologist is basically me with three more years of school and the ability to do more psychological testing than I do. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I, I have no clue how that world works. So yeah. um, definitely, and, I, and I, I don't think a lot of people do. So I think it's good to explain the different levels of. Um, yeah, with that, we should say, because when you're looking for help, you don't, I wouldn't start with a psychiatrist because that's going to be, unless you're looking for medication. But if you're looking for therapy, my advice is to start with a psychologist or a psychotherapist. And if you have a budget, start with a psychotherapist because they're gonna be, they're gonna be more, just slightly more affordable depending on their experience level. Gotcha, that is great information for people that are listening for sure because I'm sure a lot of people are even if they want to go to therapy, it's very overwhelming to, you know, go through that process of finding somebody that you like and that you trust. And that, you know, it's like, oh, I've, I've heard stories of I've had one therapist after the other and I don't know, you know, where to go next. Yeah. And that's another, I just like to say that your therapy should feel good. Now, not all the time, like sometimes you're going to go into a therapy session, you're going to discuss painful things from the past, and that's going to bring up emotion and that's going to be difficult. So there's that. But the part with how you feel about your therapist, I, it's not right if you're not going in there and going like, I really connect to this person. I feel like this person gets me. I feel like this person has my back. If you're not having that experience, keep looking. Because even though they there are a ton of us that have the same degree it's unique to each individual who they're going to connect to and and i think a lot of people end up blaming themselves when they end up pick like they're with the wrong person and they're just like well that's what therapy is and and that really breaks my heart because like i just told you in my own story like had we just started with tony maybe the curve would have been shortened because 
the other ones, they weren't bad. They just didn't get me. And I didn't feel like they understood me. And, and then the therapy doesn't work. It's very, per therapy is very personal. It, it, it's important that you actually connect to the human being that you're talking to. Definitely a hundred percent. And, and I, I just couldn't agree more. I think that it, your, your therapist has to be somebody that you trust and that you connect with or nothing. Yes. going to happen. So I wanted to kind of get into this um, relationship thing and, you know, we're surviving and thriving and we focus on women of domestic violence. So I, I want to ask you at what point do you give up that relationship and start to move forward? And how do you do that? Okay. So you're in a, you're in a relationship and it's getting physical and, and, and how do you know? Well, we're, because I think this is a lot of what happens with domestic violence cases is that, that I notice is that in the media, there's this portrayal of like, everything is black and white. There often it's a female. She's smaller than the male. The male is being violent to her. She's doing nothing to bring that violence on. There's no contribution. He's evil. She's good. She just needs to cut the cord. But, it, but relationships don't really work. At, there's a much bigger gray area. What I see is often I'm thinking of one client I have. Oh, what a strong woman. Grew up in a really abusive home. Had a kid when she was 16. Ended up when she was, came to see me when she was in her late 20s. Now is raising this has reconnected to a friend that she had in high school who knew her whole childhood experience. So they they have this bond that's deeper than just Joe Schmo she's met on the street because he knows her whole family. He knows her whole experience. It was an intense experience. He was there as a comfort to her when she was, you know, pregnant as a teenager. He was there to help her. Her mother had schizophrenia to deal with her mother's breakdowns. And he also had a, came from a really abusive family himself and was beaten by his father and his mother. And so, and, okay, and now he's like a father figure to her son, who's, who's now a teenager, who needs, who's a boy and who needs a male role model. So, okay. And so on some level, there's lots of beautiful aspects to this relationship. When he loses his, he's like, Mr. Cool, but when he loses his temper and gets triggered, he gets physical with her. He could pull her hair, push her, and in the worst cases, you know, hit her. She doesn't know what to do. She tries to leave numerous times, but there's no one that's gotten her like him. So, so what do we do? So first thing I'm going to do as the therapist and I'm going to advise people to do is, is you want to make sure that the violent part, can we prevent the violent part from happening? So does that mean that she has to, she wasn't strong enough to just leave him. So she couldn't do that initially. So it's like, okay. And she, but she noticed, I said, is there anything that can predict when he's going to go over the edge? And she said, yes. Sometimes I, get really mad at him and I start calling him names and I start yelling at him. And as I get, as I escalate my anger, even though I'm not doing it 
physically, I watch him get more and more wound up. So I was like, okay, so the first thing we're going to do is we're going to help you when you start to get angry, I want you to leave the house. I want you to say to him in a time when you're both calm, I want you to say, we, we cannot be violent with each other. It's unacceptable. It's unacceptable for my son. It's unacceptable for me. And so what I want to do is when either of us get angry, the first person who realizes that we're getting really angry, we're going to leave. We're going to tell the other person I'm going to leave and we're going to come back and talk about this later. So, so that's what she did. So, so she started to go. And so then we went from violent episodes that were happening every other day to, we now got it out to a month without a violent episode because she would go to him okay we're getting angry i'm gonna leave now he didn't like it he fought that when he was really angry but she but she heard me in her head go like if i want any chance of being with this man like i have to stop this so she did and as the story goes nothing's perfect but she was actually able to get to a place and she required him to go to therapy as well individually as she was coming to me individually and over time we got it so that the violence stopped. There are other scenarios where we, where we put something like that in place and no matter what, the person is gonna be violent because they can't control it. They're not evolved. They're not ready to go to their own therapy. They're not ready to work on themselves. Or their, their abuse history is too intense. And what I'll say is like, it's completely, it's completely not okay to be in that situation. And that's the time when you, really instead of looking for this couples therapist to help you or to be focusing on the other person needing to change in order for you to change it's for you to go and get your own help to build your own strength to be able to to stop the cycle and to essentially leave if the other person cannot join you everything that you just said was spot on and and i think that it is really important for those listening to hear that once that person has made that decision to cut the cord and leave, what should be their next steps in healing that? Because it's not going to be easy and it's not going to be non-painful or non-hurtful, you know, whatever the word to use is. So what would their, their next steps be after they're, they've decided that they're going to they're gonna leave? Number one, it's really important to be really careful. I mean, and this is not the exact question you're asking, but I'm just going to put in here that it's really important that you're careful about how you do that. If you're dealing with someone who's violent, then you really want to seek someone else's advice about how to gently to exit in the most gentle way possible. Instead, the, the tendency once you found your power is to be like, F you, I'm out, like, I deserve better. And like, you do not want to do that with someone who could hurt you. Right. So it's, it's, you know, it's maybe phrasing the story of like, I, I love you, or I loved you. But I can't, I can't be in a situation where we're engaging like this. And so, and so I'm going to need to take a separation, you can even not make it like I'm leaving forever. Even if you are because verbally, to say it as if you're not leaving forever because that's psychologically easier for the person to handle. And we want you to exit without getting hurt. So that's number one, is to be really cautious about how you do that and to enlist help and advice for how to do that in the 
in the safest way. And then once you're out, it's, it's definitely about going to therapy and getting help because I don't, I mean, of course I'm biased because I'm a therapist. So, but like, I just think there's going to be, I just told you our mind is designed to be negative. It's also designed to forget the bad. So it's, it's future focused on negative, but in the past, it lets go of the bad that's just happened. So it's very natural for people to get empowered, to leave, to get a little bit of distance, and then to start rationalizing that it was, that situation wasn't as bad as they thought. And so it's very, very common for people to go back to people that aren't good for them, unless they have someone reflecting and asking them questions on a weekly basis, reminding them of why they left. I don't, I don't recommend doing it on your, at least if you're not going to go to therapy, go to a group, go to have a friend, be talking about the process and be expecting that there's going to be a pull backwards. Again, people think it's black and white, but it's, it's not, it's not. Cause there was always good too. It, nothing is just bad. Exactly. And then that's the huge pull is that, you know, those good times when they're good, they're really, really good. Yeah. You know, one of the, the key signs to an abusive relationship is when it's good, it's incredible. And when it's bad, it's horrific. And so that is definitely something that, you know, we've said it plenty of times on the show, but the statistics are seven to eight times that a woman leaves before she actually leaves. And, and so it's, it's very true that that pull will be there when they've gone. So they've, they've gone through therapy and they are constantly, you know, being reminded that this isn't the person for them that may kind of feed into also, there's not a person for you. So how does somebody go about being able to make those romantic connections again? Good question. So I think a big thing that happens is that we, it's going to sound a little cliche, but there's a bar of expectations that we will attract whatever we think we're good enough to attract. So, and that standard, let's say we attracted someone that was abusive and but we didn't realize it in the beginning so that bar maybe like was kind of low but then we went through a bunch of trauma with them now this bar lowered like really close like it's like we don't think we deserve anything because someone didn't treat us the way like didn't treat us like a human being and then we internalize that as our own value so i'm a big like in my all my young adults roll their eyes at me because I have this, I don't let, if someone's come out of a relationship that hasn't been good, or if they've dated a bunch of people that have been disappointing, I make them, if they choose to accept it, I can't make anybody do anything, but I suggest that they date themselves. So we're going to spend six months to a year or however long it takes dating yourself. You're not allowed to go on dating apps. You're not allowed to like go out and flirt with other people. The goal is to connect to your friends, connect to your passions, journal about your own process of being with yourself and make your life really, really good. And at the point, and they're always like, how long is it going to take? And I'm like, there's going to come a point in time 
where you're so excited about your own life that you're actually scared to add someone into it. You're scared now that the quality of your life is going to go down because you've gotten it that good on your own. That's when you're ready to date because that's when you now have something to protect that you're proud of. You've now raised your bar back up to know that you can create a quality, fulfilling, happy life completely on your own. And you're going to now be really picky about who you let into that. That's what I would say. If you're really scared, don't worry about dating yet. Go date yourself first. Fall in love with yourself again. And then, and then the time will come. If you give it enough time, I promise it always comes. People rush, especially in our society, we like to go from next person to next person really quick. And we're looking for the person to fulfill our needs, but we have to fulfill ourselves first. So yeah, that's my answer to that. I I love it. Definitely. So we are getting close to wrapping up. So I definitely want to hit on your book. Tell me about what that process was like and what the book is about. So the book is kind of like another thriving dream come true for me. So I figured out how to make myself a fulfilling and happy life. Then I'm in my own office and I figure out how to help all these individual people have it. And now I'm like, but I want to help everyone. And I want to help people that aren't, I only have so many hours in the day and I want to be able to, for, you know, a really affordable price, be able to give everyone the wisdom that I've acquired in my own life and with my own clients. So my book is basically, it's, we've touched on a lot of the stuff actually in this podcast that are the beginning seeds of what's in there. It's about how to create a fulfilling romantic relationship, how to get your health on track, how to, ha- how to be an emotionally fulfilled and happy person. It's a 360 degree view of how to create the life that you want to live. And I've poured my heart and soul and my experience into it. And I'm really, really excited that it's the time is here for it to come out in June and to offer people. It's like basically taking yourself through therapy without going to therapy, essentially. Awesome. That is really, really exciting. So will it be available on iTunes or not iTunes? Amazon. Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I don't know where we're at anymore. It's day <laughs> no worries. It will be totally on Amazon and it'll be on, it'll be on iTunes too, because there's an audio version, but you can find all the version. The easiest way is to either look up my name or the title and you can find it on Amazon. Awesome. And then one more time, I know they heard it in the bio, but what's the name of the book? And it's called Life Launch, A Roadmap to an Extraordinary Adulthood and by Jesse Genta Rafe. So awesome. That's super exciting. So wrapping up, we have a few questions that we ask every guest that comes on the show. And so the first one is, what would the new you say to the old you? Just have patience, like everything's going to work out and be okay. And you don't, like, I was so worried that about seeing 50 steps ahead. And now in my life, I have everything I ever dreamed of having. And if I had just known that I was going to get it, I would have enjoyed the process more in my, in my 20s. My 30s, I've enjoyed it. In my 20s, I was still trying to get somewhere. Yeah, definitely. What is something that you can recommend to get through a tough time? I really like the Calm 
app as a way to start meditating because I think that's a simple I mean you can do meditation for free I mean I think that's like 10 bucks a month or something but that's a simple way to just get started practicing from your negative mind awesome I love it and then also what is a other than your book obviously a book um, podcast quote or something that helps you get through tough time or gives you strength Mm, my favorite quote is the last of human freedoms is one's ability to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances by Viktor Frankl. He was in a concentration camp. He lost his entire family. And then he came out of it and wrote a book saying like, we all have the ability, no matter what the circumstances to control our emotional destiny. And that is a mantra I live by. And even when I'm in a tough, emotional space. I'm looking for how I could shift my perspective or my context to make myself feel just a little bit better. Awesome. I love it. And then where can our listeners reach you if they want to know more about you? So you can go to my website, which is jesse-junta-rafay.com. And then I think there you can find the book stuff and the Amazon and all that. And I'm sure in the show notes, my name, Junta, is hard to spell, but I'm sure you can see how to spell my name and find me there. Yes, definitely. It'll be in the show notes and um, across the, the name of the podcast as well. So everybody look out for that and look out for her book coming out in June. Jesse, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Heather. This was so fun. If you or anyone you know has been victimized by domestic violence, please reach out to us for resources and ways our organization can help you. You can find us on social media at 2thrivingatl, T-O, thriving, A-T-L, or online at 2thriving.org.